0: All right, so if you were here last week, or if you weren't and you listened to it online, we studied Luke chapter six. Now Luke six is an interesting chapter because it's split up with uh, a couple different beats. The first beat starts with the healings on the Sabbath. And then we get into around verse 12, the calling of the 12 disciples. And then around verse 20 of chapter six, you've got this sermon that goes on through the rest of the chapter. And what it's doing is it's contrasting this idea of the old and the new. Jesus is teaching about the new kingdom and he's contrasting it with the old way, the old world, the old law, the old and the new. But as we approach Luke 7, we understand that Jesus is bringing more than just a sermon. In Luke chapter 6, he taught about the kingdom. And as you're going to see today, in Luke chapter 7, he demonstrates the kingdom. For Jesus, His teachings are not just mere theory or hypothesis or good ideas or Aesop's fables or clever tweets or things you could consider and maybe apply. They are the kind of thing that takes shape in your life and radically transforms who you are. That's what we're talking about. And in a world where there is no shortage of teaching, and good advice, and possible ways of doing things that never really have any teeth and take root. When we start reading Luke chapter 6, we're confronted with stuff that works. And when I say works, I mean when God's word gets into your life, it takes root. When you obey it, it produces fruit. It is not this kind of thing where I might give it a shot or try it out and see what happens. You start walking down that road, watch out. Because the moment you start giving Jesus a chance and start applying his word to your life, you're going to end up with a big old mess. It'll be the most beautiful mess that you can ever imagine. Your life won't end up like you thought it would. It will end up much better. But if you think that you're gonna be the master of your own life, and if you apply a couple of these good truths that seem like good ideas, that you're gonna end up down the road in the place where you want to be having your best life, you are sadly mistaken. What he's offering here is a complete surrender to follow a different king, and that king's not you. That king is not this world. What he is offering, what he is approaching to you in Luke chapter 6 is this. I am the new king in town. I have come to take the usurper king Whoever that may be, maybe it's you, maybe, maybe it's the person that's kind of been running your life because they spoke things over you when you were a kid, and you can't get them out of your head, and every decision you make, you're paralyzed by that one person who was influential in your life when you were like 11 or 13 years old. Maybe it's that person. Doesn't matter. Might be sports, might be politics. Whoever the king is that's sitting on the throne of your heart, Luke 6 says, I'm here to dethrone that king. And what I'm offering is for that king to bow down to me because I'm the only king. And what we see in Luke 7, what we approach in Luke 7 is this reality that all of these teachings, they're not just theory. They actually take shape and they start working. And they are confronting this other worldly kingdom and crushing it to the ground all right so that's what we're going to do we're going to look at how luke 6 is the teachings and how luke 7 is the actual putting them into practice let's get into it luke chapter 7 starting in verse 1. so luke 7 1 says after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people he entered capernaum now a centurion which is a Roman commander of about a hundred men, had a servant who was sick. And this servant was sick to the point of death, but he was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him they're speaking of the centurion being worthy to do this for he loves our nation this isn't like your average gentile centurion who's constantly oppressing us no he is the one who built us our our synagogue he contributed the the money he he built the synagogue we worship in this is a good dude jesus went with him and when he was not far from the house the centurion sent friends so this is the second delegation saying to jesus lord do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you the first time, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pause. I want to draw your attention to just verse 1 in chapter 7. It tells us that after he had finished all the sayings, he went into into Capernaum. That is Luke's way of transitioning us from the teaching time is over, And now we're moving into the action time. We are moving from the the things that Jesus is talking about into how they actually work out in practice. He went into Capernaum and now he's putting into practice the stuff that he taught about. But before you understand and move forward, I want you to have some sense of, of the geography of this region. Because it is easy for us to just not understand the map or how far things are or where Jesus is is doing his ministry, and so what I wanna do is I wanna show you a map this morning, If you'll throw that first one up there. This is a map of the region, and we're gonna zoom in right there on the Israelite region. Now, this is just a brief map. The south part is Judah, the north is Galilee, and we're gonna zoom in right there on the uh, Sea of Galilee. Now, this map, the, the marker down here at the bottom right for five miles, this kind of gives you a sense for how far things are And how close things are as far as walking distance. Now he goes into Capernaum, which is right up here at the top left. To the right is Bethsaida. That's a familiar town. I put that on there because you're going to see some of these towns referenced as we move forward. Cana, that's Galilee. Cana of Galilee, that's where Jesus turned the water into wine. You've got Nazareth, his hometown. And then we're going to see in the next story this town called Na'in. But this is kind of the region, all right? So I want you having this in your mind when you think of Jesus and his ministry. Most of Jesus's ministry took place in the north around the Sea of Galilee. He did do ministry in Judea and around Jerusalem, but most of his ministry was up here in the north around the Sea of Galilee, and they're just traveling around the sea. So now that you have a reference point for what this is, let's go through the story briefly. There's this centurion who, as I said, is a guy who is in charge of Roman soldiers and he, excuse me, he is responsible for um, a group of about a hundred men. And this guy apparently has an affinity for the Jewish culture and uh, and, uh, an affinity for the God of the Jews, uh, so much so that he has contributed some of his own money to help build the um, synagogue in the town. Now, just a few uh, pieces of information that might help you understand this guy. Most people who served in uh, the, the as a Roman soldier as centurions, they would not be married while they were serving. It would be a conflict of interest. And so most Roman centurions, they would not get married until they retired and and had served for 20 years. And so most of the Roman centurions, they would probably get in around maybe 18, 20, serve for about 20 years. And then when they were 40, they would start their family. So this guy, he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have kids, but he has lots of servants in his house. And he has this. This uh, affinity, this desire to want to bless the Jewish culture, and it is rubbed off on the culture, and they they in turn really love this guy. So this guy has a servant in his house, and I don't want you thinking like just like slave master. Like this is somebody who is employed in his house and uh, is a servant of his, and he has a, a, a great love for the servant, and the servant uh, in turn. And so when the servant gets sick the centurion has heard that Jesus, he's been teaching all kinds of stuff around Galilee. And he's familiar uh, with the fact that Jesus has been teaching stuff, but also that he's been healing people. And so he sends a delegation to go and meet Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, I will go and meet this guy. But while Jesus is going to the house, the guy sends another delegation. He finds out that Jesus is coming to his house. And this guy is thinking like, this is a Roman house. My kitchen isn't kosher. The food isn't split. Like I can't have a respected Jewish leader come into my home. It would be disrespectful. And so he sends another group and says, look, you, you, you don't, please let the guy know he doesn't need to come here. I trust that all he has to do is say the word that my servant will be healed and he will be healed. He doesn't need to come. He doesn't need to perform. He doesn't need to have a meal with me. I don't need to meet him and kind of see whether he is who he says he is. I already believe all he needs to do is say the word. And that second delegation reveals to us something very profound about this guy, that this guy understands that what Jesus is teaching isn't just theory. It's something that you literally put into practice and it works. But how does that guy know that? Because he is literally putting into practice the kind of things that Jesus is teaching on a daily basis. This guy understands authority. This guy understands that the only way that when he tells his soldiers, these 100 guys who are under him, hey, go and do this, and they say, okay, I will do whatever you say, the only reason why they obey him is because that man is sitting under authority. He answers to Rome. So when the centurion asks the hundred men, hey, go do this thing, the hundred men don't have to worry, well, who are you? No, I know exactly who you are. You are a man who is submitted to Rome. So when the centurion is asking me to do something, it's not really the centurion, it's Rome asking me to do it. And this is why Jesus marvels because this guy understands something profound about Jesus. He understands that he is the son of God who is submitted to the father. And even in the same way that he's submitted to the father, creation is submitted to him. And so, because of the way that his life works and how he understands the way that things work in his own life, he can hear the teachings of Jesus and know, like, that's not just like an, a clever idea. That actually works, because I see it working in my own life. And so I'm gonna take what I understand and I'm gonna apply it to here. And all you have to do, Jesus, because you're a man under authority, is say the word and creation will obey you. Because creation, all of it, is submitted to you. And so all you have to do is say the word and creation will obey. And Jesus marvels at this. He's looking around. He's like, yeah, I'm looking around at Israel and I can't even find this kind of faith. What kind of faith is he talking about? Hear me. The kind of faith that hears the message, believes it, and then acts on it. The kind of faith he's finding in Israel is the kind of faith that is familiar with the word and believes it, but they don't act on it. They don't do anything with it. And the proof is that Jesus is standing before them. He is the Messiah that's been prophesied for years by all the prophets. He's literally the guy everyone's been talking about. And they don't believe him. They don't act on their belief. They believe a Messiah is coming, but this isn't quite the guy that we thought. And so the question that's kind of begged from the text here is if Jesus came to his own people the first time and he couldn't find any faith, if Jesus were to come to his people today, what would he find? Now, who are his people today? That's us. If Jesus were to walk into this room today, what kind of faith would he find? What kind of people would he find? Would he find a collection of people who were committed to God's word? Man, they, they loved it. They, 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 they believed that like, authority and these other teachings from Luke 6, they're not just abstract concepts. They actually work in reality. But, but would you find people who are actually working them in reality? And this is the tough question for today. The idea that we could read something and believe it and never really act on it. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the epidemic in church where a group of people gather every single week and we all on the same page, we all sing the same songs, we all get hyped up at the same stuff, we all read the same text, we're like, yep, I believe that. We look at each other next to each other during the Sunday, we're giving each other high fives, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, but when you leave this room, you don't act on it. All week you'll say, I believe it, but what are you doing with it? The idea that you would, on a Sunday morning, sitting next to your girlfriend, say, I affirm the marriage bed. It should be kept holy. You say you believe that. But let me ask, are you acting on that when it's just you two sitting in your truck at Lake Ella? We all believe, man, husbands, husbands, Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Lay your life down for her. How we believe it. But do we act on it when we get a response we didn't like? And this is my home. You see what I'm talking about? There is a big difference between saying I believe something and, re, and, and, and acting like that thing that is just a truth now has roots deep down in your soul and starts producing fruit and actually changing you and you're acting on it. There is a, a huge difference to the fact that these messages, these, these sermons, these things that Jesus is talking about are not just parables to just be left on the page. They're parables to be put inside your heart and then start changing you. Let, let me ask you this question. If we really believed what this word said and really started acting on it, would there be any room in our lives for worry or fear or anxiety or anger? And, and I'll do the, the opposite side of it. If we really believed this word and we really acted on what we believed and obeyed it, what would your worship look like? What would your evangelism look like? What would that component of your life of sharing your faith look like if you really believed that that coworker that you sit in a cube next to, that you are really good friends with, if you really believed that if he died, he would go to an eternal hell? This is why Jesus is marveling, because people outside of the family are getting it when people inside the family who are so close to it are missing it. And that's one of the things Luke wants you to consider. Are you so close to it? Are you so fast to say, I believe that you're not actually acting on it? And you're lying to yourself because you're so fervent about your belief that you're actually not really doing anything with it. That's the question. Now let's go over to Luke chapter seven. are we'll start in verse 11. <clears throat> Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the ear, which is the coffin and the bearers stood still because you're not supposed to do that. You go up and you touch a coffin, you're unclean for three days. You touch a dead body, you're unclean for seven. So he goes up and touches his coffin and everybody just freezes. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. I just want you to think about what it would have been like to be at that funeral. (laughs) Fear seized them all. You're darn right. they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and saying things like God has visited his people and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So after the situation with the centurion we're told that he goes to this other town in Naín. And in this town is a funeral. Now it's, it's a small town, a couple hundred people maybe. So everyone knows who this woman is. She's a widow, she doesn't, she doesn't have a husband anymore, she's got one son who's now passed away, so she doesn't have anybody to take care of her. And in this funeral, Jesus walks up and he sees this woman and she's lost everything. She's now literally poor, physically, emotionally. She's empty, she's got nothing left. She's poor, poor in flesh, poor in spirit and she's weeping, she's weeping deep in her soul because she's lost her son and she's weeping outwardly. Luke wants you to see this and think back to the message from Luke 6, 20 and 21. Blessed are the poor and blessed are those who weep. Jesus takes his message from Luke 6, and in front of the entire crowd, literally brings it to life. Blessed is the one who is poor because they're gonna get the kingdom of God. Blessed is the one who weeps because they're going to laugh. Now we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that is in eternity. But in order to help all of the people understand that what Jesus was doing was taking not just just theory and not just um, like an interesting college classroom or, or a TED talk. He's taking theories and literally bringing them to life. These aren't just messages. This is real truth and he's bringing it to life in front of everybody. And so this woman who was literally poor in spirit and literally weeping is now her entire life is transformed because Jesus has now brought the entire message of Luke 6 to life. He has now not just talked about resurrection power, the kind of power that can take a dead man and bring him back to life, that can take your old sinful nature and make you completely new, that you don't have to live in your old sin. You can be made new and brought into a completely new life. No, he's not just talking about it. He's literally doing it. Do you now see how I brought this dead man back to life? I can do it in you who are now alive but dead. Those of you who are asleep, man, I can wake you up. I can give you the life that you've always wanted. This thing deep in the soul, it feels like you've got this hole in your gut. Like you just, there's stuff you want that you're chasing. And then just when you grab it, it just slips out of your hand. It's going to keep being like that if you keep chasing this world. But I've got something better to offer. All of that is wrapped up in this kid coming back to life. And it's a powerful message. There's just one problem. That message creates inside of us a level of uncertainty and frustration. Because the natural question when you see a mom get her son back is, what about my son? How come I didn't get my son back? You feel that, doesn't it? You feel that. What about me? Praise God that Jesus has compassion on this woman, but what about my situation? Does he has compassion on me? What about, what about my weeping? Well, Luke anticipates that question that arises when you watch someone get something that you thought should have come your way, and he answers it by asking you to take a look over here at this guy named John the Baptist. Let's continue. Luke 7, 18. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, what are they reporting? Man, it's wild out here. Now, why is John having to have these things reported to him? Because he's in prison right now. He spoke the truth to the usurper king, Herod. He didn't like it. And so he put John in prison and he was scheduled for death row. He was going to have his head cut off and he's just sitting there waiting until his day comes for his head to be chopped off. And he's hearing all this stuff happening out there and he's starting to lose hope a little bit. So here's what he does. So he sends his disciples, John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Here's it, this is a tough one. Buckle up and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the So He turns from the messengers and he now looks at the crowd and he, he asks, he says, all you guys that went out to go see John in the wilderness, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who, who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they're in the king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. He was more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was spoken. And he quotes Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And at that moment, all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, and they declared God is just because they were baptized with the baptism of John. And the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves because they had not been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you didn't weep. See, John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon, and the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pause right there, because there's a lot going on in that section. And while it on its surface may seem like it's unconnected, Jesus is all trying to make the same point. The chapter or this section, uh, verse 18, it starts with this question from John. John the Baptist has gone from, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to, should we be looking for somebody else? It's amazing how your situations can change your perspective, isn't it? I can bring you to a place where the things that you were so sure of now, mm, I'm not really sure because they don't look the way you thought they would look. That's what doubt does. You anticipate that things are going to go a certain way. And when they don't, then you start questioning, well, was this God in the first place? You start questioning, is this God's ways? And that's what Luke is addressing. This question that we have in our soul when we read 11 through 12 and we ask, well, why not me? Why not my situation? I have all these unmet expectations about Jesus. God's doing things in such a way that uh, in, in a way that I wouldn't have done. I'm looking at my life and man, I am, I am much older than I thought I would be and less mature. I thought I'd be farther along. I thought I'd be married. I'd... I, I, I thought I wouldn't be married to this person. I thought I'd have more kids. I thought I'd have less kids. I thought I'd be making more money. I thought I'd be in a bigger house. I thought I'd be across the world doing something else with my life. I didn't think I'd be coming out of prison trying to start over. It doesn't matter where you are, our circumstances have a way of framing how we see God. And that is what Luke wants to see, excuse me, wants us to see <coughs> through the questioning of John the Baptist. Lord, my life didn't turn out like I thought it would. So are you really in charge? Do you really have the way, the the, the power to to redeem me? I mean, I've done some pretty bad things. Could you really use me? Or on the other side, I've done some pretty great things. Why aren't you using me? Don't you know who I am? I have so much power and influence. All of it comes down to this one reality, and this is what we touched on in the very beginning. Jesus answers your hesitation, your questions, your, what, you're not meeting my expectations, God. He answers it with one statement. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. What does that mean? When Jesus tells John, John's messengers to go and tell John that, what is he saying? He's saying, remind John who the real king is. I'm the king, not you. Now for some of you, that's the worst news you've heard all day, because you've lived most of your life like a king. For some of you, that's refreshing. That's the best news you heard, because you can finally take the hands off the wheel. But this is what Jesus says in blessed are those who are not offended by me. He says, I'm the king and I'm gonna do things my way and in my timing. And if you want to follow me, then you're gonna have to submit to my ways and my timing. You don't get to follow me and still do things your way and in your timing. And sometimes my timing takes much longer than you think it should because I've got to forge inside of you the character that is required for the thing that I want to give you next because if I don't, when I give it to you, it's gonna crush you. Or you're gonna build your own kingdom out of it and forget me. And so what I need you to understand is that when I do things, when I tell this woman over here, I'm going to give you your son back. And when you pray to me, Lord, do this thing for me. Resurrect this thing for me. And I tell you no, I need you to look at all of the amazing things I am currently doing and all of the things I have done. Look at my entire resume and trust that that no is the best thing for you. Me telling you no is not me holding some joy or some fun back from you. Me telling you no or telling you not yet because it's my timing, not yours. That is exactly what you need. Now, how can you trust that when you ask God, do this for me and I say no, that that's what I needed to hear? Go and look at all the people that I've healed the blind that have received their sight, the lame that have walked, the lepers that are cleansed, the deaf, look at all the things that I'm doing and then you tell me that I don't have your best interest in mind. You can't, I love you, I cherish you, you're you're mine, you are my child. I am making you something, I'm molding you into something that you couldn't do for yourself and so what I'm asking you is to trust me, don't get offended by me. But then after he answers that question The disciples walk away and he turns around and he looks over at the crowd and he asks you, he says, you know, speaking of people's expectations not being met, let me ask you a question. Why did you go out into the wilderness to look for John? Was it because you were looking for somebody who who would bend under the weight of the world that would give you the kind of message that you wanted to hear? Were you so desperate to come to church and listen to a preacher tell you what you already knew? Did you come to church looking for a guy who is well-dressed and and is, is rubbing shoulders among the elite? No, that's not why you went out to find John. The reason why you went out to find John is because you were looking for a prophet. You wanted to hear the truth. And what he proclaimed, the truth that he said, was that Jesus is coming. And he's got this message. And when the message shows up, Don't be surprised that it's not in the package you thought it would be. When Jesus shows up and he starts talking about all the stuff about the kingdom and loving your enemies, don't get all upset because you're like, well, uh, I don't want to love my enemies. Because don't you understand that you were God's enemy before he saved you and made you part of his family? He's addressing the expectation, not just of John, but he turns it from John, he turns it to the entire crowd. Hey, I understand that this thing that John is struggling with is not exclusive to John. Now, everybody struggles with this. Everybody struggles with the fact that I think God should be doing this for me in this way and in this timing. And Jesus says, it's not gonna happen. No. And what I need for you is to be comfortable with that no. Because in me telling you no or not yet, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm doing in you, you, you can't see it right now, but I'm saving you from another seven years of heartache. Just no. Follow me. Trust me. And in addressing the crowd, and he says, you know, these unmet expectations, you know, he said, wait for for Jesus and and he's gonna show up and and now he's here and and you don't like him. You know what you guys are like? You're like a bunch of children. This generation is like a bunch of children who sit out in the marketplace and they're playing games with each other and they're playing games with God. And and then they get upset, they start crying because no one wants to play their games. Other people don't wanna play their games, God doesn't wanna play their games. And then he ends with this really peculiar sentence. He says in verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. What is he saying? He's saying that you can examine whether the wisdom that you are being taught actually produces something by looking at the fruit that it produces. Now, he doesn't use fruit. He uses children or offspring. He's standing there talking to this crowd that is disappointed that Jesus isn't the kind of king that they thought he should be. And he's telling them, What you have before you now is me and my teachings and what it produces, the kind of offspring that the kind of disciple that is produced. If you listen to my teaching and you act on it and what it produces in your life. And what I'm also telling you is that this isn't the only wisdom in the world. There is other wisdom in the world. There is your own wisdom. There is the wisdom of this age. There is the wisdom of the Pharisees. And what I'm asking you to do is to consider when you're sitting out there thinking, what wisdom should I follow? I want you to consider the kind of offspring that the wisdom produces. This is essentially what he's saying. Look at the evidence of what happens when you act on the theory that you've been taught. Now this kind of subtly references back to the teaching thing, but essentially what he's saying is if your humanities professor, who is on his third marriage, and now thinks he's a woman, gives you advice for the way you should be living your life, examine where the wisdom came from and consider, is that person worth listening to? Take a look at the people in your life who are telling you what you need to be doing and how you're supposed to be doing it. Look and examine, is what they're saying actually produce any kind of fruit? you're thinking, man, this whole Christianity thing, this is, it's gone so far, maybe like the interpretations, they're off, I don't know, we can trust some things, you're starting to read some books by some people who are starting to deconstruct their faith, and and you're like, they're giving you some wisdom, or or maybe you're you're on this existential journey, and you want to start exploring like the spirituality of of the world, and and you've read this book by this guy who tells you, man, if if you start taking some of these psychedelics, you're going to, your mind is going to be opened up, Here's, this is what Jesus tells you to do. Examine the offspring or the fruit of what these people are saying. Are these people at peace? Are these people well? Uh, Are they they put together? Do they have a marriage that's been going on for 40 years? Or do they have multiple marriages? How do their kids think about them? Consider the offspring or what happens when you follow this wisdom before you consider. Because the wisdom that Christ offers produces the best fruit if acted on. This is what he's talking about. And to illustrate that point and drive it all home, he gives us one final contrasting picture. Let's go to verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And so he went into a Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of oil. Now this is interesting, because often we think that like Jesus is just crummy to the Pharisees, right? But he got invited over for dinner, so he went to this Pharisee's house. And he's reclining at the table of this Pharisee. And standing behind him, verse 38, at his feet, this woman started weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee, when he saw this, who had invited him, said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Now, he's not talking about Simon Peter. Simon is the name of the Pharisee who's hosting this party. All right, so this isn't the disciple, Simon Peter. This is Simon the Pharisee. He looks at him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And When he couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will, you, will love him more? And Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you, even though it's your house, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You, as the owner of this house, didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among them, among themselves, who's this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke ends this chapter with one final picture contrast. On one side of the room, you've got a Pharisee. And this Pharisee is sitting there, carefully examining Jesus, trying to decide whether this guy is worth his time, or if his teachings are worth being applied in his life. Because it's going to require a lot of them, but he's sitting back thinking, is this guy really worth my time? Is what he's saying actually work? And he's sitting back there just taking notes, just trying to discern, is Jesus worth my time? And on the other side of the room, you've got somebody else, a sinful woman who doesn't bring in her notepad and her pen trying to examine Jesus and discern whether What he has to say actually applies to her life or maybe one of her friends and she's gonna make sure that she gets the recording of the message and sends it to them because they need it more than she does. No, she comes in fully surrendered. She doesn't need Jesus to explain himself. She believes his teachings and she acts on what she believes and her act is worship. She pours out that which is the most expensive thing to her. And the Pharisees are sitting over here saying, well, man, if you understood how she got that money to buy that ointment, like you wouldn't want that stuff on your feet. And Jesus is sitting over here saying, man, you don't understand it. And this is the picture he's given us. What is the difference in the two wisdoms presented to us? How are you supposed to examine the offspring of if this person comes to you and says, this ideology is worth giving your life to. How do you examine worth, whether it's actually a valid claim and it is worth you giving your life to? You examine the fruit that it produces and the fruit that is produced from the religious elite is a man who's sitting over here, judgmental, self-righteous, and unloving. And the woman on the other side who has applied Jesus' teachings to her life is forgiven, and grateful and filled with humility and worship. Wisdom is justified by her children. Look at the results of the path. There is, on the one side, Jesus. And all of his teachings from Luke chapter six, all the things he's presenting to you as things worth following. And if you act on them, you start seeing the things in Luke chapter seven, a transformed life, healing, resurrection power, your doubts being quieted, but also your sins being forgiven. A life of worship poured out to the King. That's what happens when you take the teachings of Jesus and you apply them and you obey them. But the other side of the coin, this isn't a vacuum. There there is another side to uh, consider. There is the wisdom of this age. There is the wisdom of your experience. The fact that you have spent a great deal of your life doing these certain things, and they got this result, and you're convinced that if you keep doing these things, you'll get a different result. But what you haven't considered is the fact that God might just get in your way. And you can keep doing those things, but they're not gonna produce any results. Today is the day you have to make a decision. Today is the day you have to decide, look, I've got an entire book, most of it I haven't read, that gives me a framework for how I'm supposed to live my life. I have to decide whether that is worth giving my life to, submitting to it, and producing the kind of things that it's going to produce, or, I gotta, or, or I'm going to continue to do the same things that I've been doing my whole life. That is the only option. That is what is presented to you now. It's presented to you in so many different ways that it doesn't seem that easy. There is a way presented to you from the world through your phone, there is a way presented to you through different organizations. There is a way presented to you from certain churches. There is a way presented to you from your lineage of your family. You've got your dad in your ear in your ear, shouting at you, your grandpa shouting at you. You've got the world shouting at you. You've got your wife shouting at you. You've got your your boss shouting at you. You've got people everywhere you look telling you, this is what you should be doing. Here's what you should be doing. Here's the way you should live your life. If you just did this thing, these things would be different. But what? the Bible wants you to consider is to start asking yourself the tough question, all right, if I did that, where would my life end up? And the truth is, if you follow the wisdom of this world, you're gonna end up exactly like this world, with a broken marriage and children that hate you, and a job you can't stand, and an eternity of flames waiting for you. And I don't care how enticing the message or the wisdom of this world looks like. I don't care how deep your sense of entitlement runs because God didn't do things the way that you thought he should. If you continue down this path, you will end up on the wide road with everyone else, kicking rocks and complaining that your life didn't turn out the way it should. We look at, I I have heard so many reports, people close to me, like, man, I'm just not into the church thing anymore. And my first question is, man, what wisdom did you buy into? What lie did you follow? Because what's presented to us is, inside of a church is this little bubble, right? And if you get caught up in this little bubble, they're going reinf- to they're, they're indoctrinate you and they're going to teach you these little things and, and, and you're just going to be so shallow and narrow-minded and you're just only going to believe things that, that they want you to believe. But man, if you could just break outside the bubble and be out here where it's free and, and learn that, 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 that that's just a controlling atmosphere, if you could just get outside the bubble and just get out into the world and learn some things, man, you'd have your mind expanded. Well, that's a lie. <coughs> And this is the reason why it's a lie, because you don't move out of the bubble into open space. You move out of the bubble into another bubble. Excuse me. Excuse me, I pushed my voice too hard. You move out of the bubble or this world of discipleship and way of thinking into a completely different world. And that world's a bubble too. Hear me. The lie of the enemy is if you can just get away from church people, you can start thinking for yourself and you'll be free. That's a lie. If you get out from under the teachings of God's word, you get under the teachings of somebody else. And all of those teachings lead one place, the dragon. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's over everything in this world. You can't pull a thread of philosophy or history or psychology or pop culture or technology without ultimately ending up in his backyard. There are two ways, folks, you submit to the wisdom and the teaching of Jesus and you will yield that fruit or you will end up submitting to the teachings of the enemy and you will produce the fruit he wants you to produce. And you say, man, that's a lie. That seems, that's, that's exactly what a church person would say. All right, well, just hear me. Examine the fruit of the people who are telling you to get out of the church. What is their life like? what kind of people are they like? Wisdom is justified by all of her children. And if you pay attention to the kind of children that is produced from the wisdom being spewed by this world, you will come to understand that what Jesus is offering is the most beautiful gift you've ever seen. Amen? Now let's pray.